Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. My name is Chris Jackson. And I'm Fred Shankleberg. Hey, Chris. Hi, Fred. We're going to, if you'll indulge me, talk about, um, you ever heard of the ship called the Vasa? I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Well, Vasa? it was Northern Europe, so obviously you're not. Yeah, and, and apparently English-speaking countries can barely understand my interesting dialect of English anyway, so... Uh, let's let's run with Vasa. Okay, sounds a little bit more exotic, and the Swedish Swedish listeners can ring in and correct my pronunciation as part of the comments. But um, the Vasa was a ship which was built in the 1600s, and it lasted all of 1,300 meters or less than a mile before it capsized and sunk um, when it started listing to one side and water started rushing through. Unfortunately, the, uh, it killed a bunch of people too. Yeah, I think thirty odd people died, and it was uh, it was its maiden voyage, obviously, and it was it, it sunk in full view of lots of people because there was a lot of fanfare to it being um, launched. It was one of the sort of flagships of the Swedish Empire at the time. Um, it's since been um, it, it, it's since been found and and salvaged from the bottom of the ocean. I think it's a now now it's in a museum somewhere in Sweden. It's quite a quite a decent tourist attraction. But um, <laughs> they're not doing uh, yachting tours or anything like that, are they? No, no. I think that would be a short-lived tourist tourist uh, yeah. initiative. But it's what's it, what I find most interesting about it is that it was a ship which was fundamentally flawed in its design. And anyone who knew anything about um, naval engineering at the time knew it. But in the very acrimonious and public and vicious investigation that happened thereafter, noting that it was commissioned by the then king, um, so it was kind of a big deal when there was a huge pressure to find a scapegoat, well, everyone walked away without any blame except, except a dead guy. And the reason I'm talking about this is because I think that very human organisational trait where Everyone runs away from blame, especially if there's a group of people whose main job in life is to apportion blame. That sort of phenomenon is alive and kicking today, um, and it's not a good thing. And one of the reasons is because there is a huge difference between blaming and improving. In fact, you'd argue that blaming is the is essentially the opposite of improving. I know the opposite of improving is technically making something worse, but... But I think you start blaming or suing other folks, then it, you are making it worse. I think it just creates a culture of fear all the way through. Right, and I think one of our previous podcasts, we talked about how um, uh, uh, we had, an, uh, for example, a client who's struggling to get information from a, from a supplier, and often that is one of the one of the outcomes you get when, as a supplier, <clears throat> you're all about blaming, trying to work out if you can sue a supplier, which introduces a very adversarial relationship, which case study after case study has shown to be not a good thing at all. Um, 
Whereas if you're interested in improving, then it's all about trying to understand what happened. And then once you understand what happened, you work out who's, who is best to address the issue as opposed to who is responsible, which is very different to who is best sometimes. The human side of this, though, is there's politics, there's a perception of power of, you know, who knew what, when we get that it's in the news these days, you know, it's who knew what, when kind of stories about politicians or corporate leaders or all these others. And then damning email or Twitter things come out about what they knew when it doesn't actually, I mean, part of root cause analysis of taking a, a good, clean look at what went wrong does include people. People make mistakes. There's no doubt about uh-huh. it. And sometimes it's, in going way back to Deming, it's, it's the system itself fosters making mistakes. It, so it's not that person's fault. It's the system around them that helped them, unless they're just plain evil, uh, I guess, um, that that mistake would occur. It, they didn't have the tools or the training or the incentives or the or the foresight or the connection to their product or what they were trying to do. But you imagine with the 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 Vassar is that you know if they didn't know why if they knew that this was a bad design from a nautical point of view, and if the culture was well, you never say something bad to the king's. Uh, prime minister in charge of boat building because he just kills you <laughs> well then you just don't say anything you know yeah well and the other thing is um you know thomas edison i think famously once said i haven't failed i've just found a thousand ways it won't work right um and so for every good idea an inventor or inventor or an entrepreneur has there's Let's pick a number. Let's just say a hundred bad ideas or ten approaches minimum. Oh, I, that didn't I'm work. way better at that. I I can have like two hundred thousand bad ideas before I get a good yeah. one. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, so, that's just that's the way it works for some people. But you just it doesn't work any other way. No human being has been able to absolutely nail every single idea they've come up with. They haven't been able to dribble absolute gold every second of every single day and you need to if you want to be cutting edge if you want to be an industry leader then you need to foster an environment where your employees um, are told it's okay to make mistakes because without those mistakes you can't take genuine steps towards illumination or bright ideas or progress whatever progress whatever you want to call that mm-hmm. And a culture which is all about trying to find blame essentially thwarts any sort of uh, illumination or inspiration because there's no inspiration without what could be perceived by some as failure. Well, also, it, where there's that, there's just the, I'm not going to take a risk if it's a chance that it'll fail, I'll always buy from the same vendor that's never let us down before. And I'll, I won't use this other material that's way better, I think, but I'm not sure. So I'm not going to try it because I'll get blamed if it doesn't work. And, you know, I'll spend a hundred dollars on a, on a sample and then they'll call it a waste of time and I'll be dinged for it. Well, then Mm -hmm. why would I ever try something different or new or whatever? Um, then that that's, part and parcel to that 
kind of environment where, and then it, but it, you know, it's, if it goes all the way out that you're going after a vendor because they gave you a bad batch of components and you're yelling at them and cutting the, what you're going to pay them and you're going to sue them and all of the other stuff. Well, at some point, how many vendors are really going to want to work with you? You know, let's uh-huh. extrapolate this out here. As opposed to saying, hey, you know, we're getting ready to do this product. We're not really sure if this is going to work. What do you know about this product and this application? Let's let's talk about this together and figure out if this is the right way to go. If it works, you got business. If it doesn't work, no harm, no foul. We'll move on. But you don't see that very often. No, or you do in a way. You do because the the, the things have stock shelves and and uh, you know made by industry leaders so to speak they're the companies that tend to be more open to you know let's say developmental failures um, yeah. I think we, the clients we deal with are often those who are struggling and don't know why <laughs> so we might be a little bit biased well it's it's a cultural thing isn't it all the way through the organization and it starts with individuals feeling safe enough to say eh, let me try this and and you can contain that it doesn't mean you have to go spend a hundred million dollars on a new supply chain and then hope it works no you do due diligence you take off bits and pieces of it and make sure it works as you go and adjust as you go and we're not saying bet the farm on it but it's if the even small risks are thwarted, then the, su- the supply chain team that's picking a vendor is going to pick ones that they can run roughshod over if that's their goal. Is And it's like, mm, you know, <laughs> that's just not going to work, guys. I've seen it not work so many times. Um, I had one, one team, the vendor, the the resulting part was is that the culture that this particular uh, vendor that was going to do the design and the manufacturing eventually for this new part of a, a product line um, did an excellent job and paid attention to the design and made a beautiful design, but there was just a razor thin profit margin in it for him. And in the contract, they said, well, we can change every component uh, as we go into production. And so they did. And they, instead of titanium, they used this softened lead, I think, you know, it was just every material set, every component, everything was swapped out for the absolute cheapest. And of course the product failed miserably and very few of them ever actually worked. Uh, no way. Oh yeah. Who'd have thought? And they said, you know, we've been raked over the coal so many times that our lawyers said we had to put that in there to protect ourselves. And they took it to the extreme and then, they ended up, you know, there was no business there because the product never worked at that point. So there was like, and then the company never went back to them. But it was, what it, it, but the underlying lesson learned from it was is that that vendor had been cheated so many times that they they were trying desperately just to stay in business and right. really kind of put a nail in it at that end. And you could... So essentially you're talking about the vendor who wanted to have that clause in the contract to protect themselves, mm-hmm. but then use that clause to destroy their design. Yeah, so, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, they, they, they got the clause in there. So 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, if it's part of their business model was to win the contract with system A and then essentially create system B, which it is if you if you replace every single material with something else, yeah. it might look the same, but it's a fundamentally a different thing. Um, then it's uh, quite quite literally fool's gold. <laughs> it doesn't have the same value. Yeah. Um, but it, it's 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 just interesting how. Uh, I look at I look at militaries as well, and I find that militaries, where they have this factory of leaders, so to speak, that you know write books, and you know as soon as you think militaries, and you and I are ex-military, and we, mm-hmm. we we no doubt you've come across guys and girls who are great leaders, and guys and girls who weren't. But when you look at especially Western militaries across the world, whatever it is they call leadership these days is so confined, let's just call it to war fighting, that they don't even know that their leadership doesn't work for everything else. If you look at, uh, you, you, you look at everything is ranging from the F-35 Lightning through to everything else, it, every, every single solution to a logistics or a reliability or a supply-related crisis involves a bunch of usually white guys, old white guys in suits coming up with a set of recommendations to change the system, but never to change the mindset, which is essentially what leadership, this wonderful thing called leadership is all about. And when you change a system, everyone should have a role and everyone gets their duty statement and their statement of work. When everyone does everything they're supposed to, then everything should be fine, which is never a thing, especially for complex systems. Um, And and then you have this organisation where we have military, you have overruns with project after project and things fail. Well, if congressman's saying you you can't cancel this because it means jobs in my district and I have an election coming up, so make it, we'll just look past those failures, we'll make it up later, and the poor system never, ever actually works as useful. And then there's, I mean, there's every the U.S. Navy, the the, uh, the U.K. Ministry of Defence created a, a bunch of destroyers which couldn't work in equatorial waters. They were too hot. Oh really? So, yeah, <laughs> the Type 45 destroyers. And the, cra- the crazy thing is, is that the well, they, they, that's a that's a whole podcast in its own right. But well, no wonder they lost the Falkland Islands. Well, the destroyers all fell apart when they crossed the equator, and then they couldn't get down there. <laughs> that was forty years ago. But know, yeah. so, it's actually quite recent. <laughs> uh, essentially, they had a choice of going for tried and true um, uh, gas turbine, or they could use a developmental gas turbine, which hadn't been developed by Rolls Royce, which is a UK based organization they never done it before and they somehow managed to competitively beat a tried and true tested which is a model which is employed in i think i counted 77 navies across the world oh so is it the uh the king of sweden involved with this you know the ghost of the the former (laughs) monarch (laughs) well it's 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 essentially just like the vasa all over again um no, and not only was no one to blame for this, the Type 45 destroyers, um, I forget who the prime contractor was, but they got awarded the contract to fix it. <laughs> to of replace, course. <laughs> replace the gas turbines. It's, yeah. 
Yeah, they got rewarded for their um, screwing it up the first time. Exactly. It's it, 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 the the whole, but no one no one could. There was a huge argument between the UK government, so to speak, and the prime contractor about these things not being able to operate within um, equatorial waters. And uh, one of the one of the the consistent rebuttals was this was manufactured within specifications. You go, oh, guys. So yeah. no one, no one's going. This, the underlying systemic issues, which see military project after military project turn into atrocity after atrocity, is it's it's not not going away anytime soon. No, no, and it's not limited to these couple of examples. We've seen this all no. kinds of places, and it's. Um, but as anyway, what do we do about it? Is we're we're sitting in the trenches, or even if you're in a leadership position within your organization, it's. You got to read the tea leaves. Is it safe for you to say, hey, you know, Emperor's got no clothes here, guys. We got to fix this uh, or this isn't going to work and and have, you know, your evidence in place and, and have a solid argument. But it's the political will and politics and power dynamics and all those things can just run roughshod over that. And do you want to play in that sandbox or do you want to go somewhere else or do you, can you build enough influence to say, hey, we need to fix this. This this isn't right. That's a challenge. And right. you can see it from wherever you sit in an organization. But and sometimes it won't be that draconian or that that bad. But um, it's still a gamble for many people to say, do I say something or let the chips fall where they are, you know, where they're going to? Now, I think we've, we may have confusingly talked about you know, organisations, they need to allow a culture of, they need to prevent, sorry, a culture of blame because those 10, 10 terrible ideas we inevitably need to go through for every good idea, uh, that, that sort of behaviour won't, be, uh, won't, won't be promoted. We'll, we'll, we'll promote people who don't make mistakes who happen to be also people who don't come up with great ideas. Mm-hmm. And that's where you get that sort of overly... Um, plotting bureaucratic, systemic, boring corporate organisation where every single change requires 16 levels of authority, 13 side meetings, and then eventually they'll say no anyway. Um, that sort of organisation <laughs> is, y- you and I know plenty of them. But if we, if in the same breath we're saying, well, you can't apportion blame to individual people because that creates a negative culture, but by the same token... Uh, <laughs> At the higher level, how how can we all? Sounds like we're saying we need to apportion blame at the organisations themselves when they create those destroyers that can't operate in warm water. Um, and I think what we're trying to say is it's a leadership thing. Uh, you have to blame the leadership. You can't blame individuals. You do have to blame the leadership if they don't create the right cultures for good things to happen. That's where blame needs to be apportioned, not. Not to elements of a of a whole production ecosystem. Yeah. If something doesn't go right, if there is blame to be apportioned to the leadership for not getting the culture right in the first place, which is something that's a challenging idea to implement as a rule. As a rule, yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. And I don't know what would be a a symptom. I was in one organization where I think the the senior staff had a tenure of usually about six months to eighteen months. Around the time frame of a product development cycle, and 
they would, you know, get ready to launch the program and they go, oh, I just got a new job. I got promoted. I'm going to be vice president of this, that, and the other thing. And then their product doesn't survive six months out there, but they moved on. They got their promotion. They're out of here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I see it at much more micro levels also. It's, you know, I'm, there's, I don't, I don't know what the answer is to it all. It's uh, some organizations do a great job and get it, but I also see it in within, within a team. You know, if I'm working on something and I see a, a bug or a glitch or something that's going wrong and I don't really understand it, it's instead of saying, uh, writing it up as a, a trouble ticket and just sending it off to the ether and hope somebody else fixes it, is walk across this, you know, the hallway and go, Hey, you know, Sarah, I'm seeing this. What do you think of that? What, what could this mean? Is this serious? Do we need to fix this or not? And, and it's not saying I, I'm asking you because you might know something to help me understand how to solve this problem. It's not <laughs> like it's your problem. You fix it. Or it's not, it's your fault. You, you should get a demotion. I should take your office now. It's, how do we, you and me together on the same day of the table, go off and fix something? And that starts with individual conversations. And so I think you can, even at a very junior level, be an example of how to get this stuff right. And I don't know, it, it, for me, it's a better way of working. Um, yeah. And you build trust and cooperation and you build stuff that actually then creates a team that creates good products despite the bureaucracy. And if you're lucky, you get one or two senior folks that are cultural leading type people going, you know, that actually worked out pretty well. We need to do more of that. How about we stop, you know, stringing up and tar and feathering whoever made a mistake. Um, let's, let's do it right. I think, I think it just comes, uh, you are a lot more, I think one of the differences between you and me is is you, uh, I think, ha- believe that there's a lot more power within the the uh, worker bees of an organisation than I do sometimes. I don't think all the time, but I, as a rule, I think you might think that people at the lower levels have more influence at least than I do because I'm very – it's all about the, the person, the boss who walks in. What do they say that, that – uh, well, what I have a, a long a, history. Uh, I'm just asking any of my bosses. I have a long history of ignoring them when I don't agree with them. Maybe that's the, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe that's the healthy attitude. I don't know. But yeah, there's some folks that, you know, it's, well, yeah, I I don't agree with that. I'm going to go left instead of right. <laughs> you know, yeah. just, whatever. And I mean, we, there's, also, there's also, you know, examples where one of our friends who – was relatively happy where she was working so, to an extent, but when cost-cutting measures came along and the project she was working on got cancelled, and even though she wasn't out of a job per se, she was going to be found a job somewhere else, mm-hmm. she was done. She walked away because her reason for being there in the first place is you, know, that's, you want engineers who are passionate about what they're doing, yep. what they're creating, investing into that particular project. And so when you're talking about that person who says, okay, I'm off now, I'm VP of this, that, and the other. There are plenty of other organizations who are really good at saying, we're going to create this wonderful new thing and create an environment where people don't want to leave that thing and that thing doesn't get taken off the table. And there's almost an internal ecosystem of promotion and seniority where you can still come up to work and see you working on that thing five years from now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
you see that in startups more often than big companies. Right. Yeah, it's it's they are fully vested in the concept of the product or the solution they're trying to create. And it's it is contagious when you get into a group like that. Right. And that those organizations who I talked about earlier who are, you know, <laughs> after years of stamping on any perceived failures, everyone everyone looks like the same gray suited corporate person who <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Yep, yep. Uh, that, if they get parachuted, they think, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll join this young startup over here because I've got 15 years experience in this corporate bureaucratic nightmare. And they get there and within three weeks, the CEO says, you're done. Their first reaction is, you can't fire me. Where's HR? And they say, we don't have HR. We're a startup. Get out. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, right. Yeah. You're just you're, not you're either on board or you're not. Yeah, yeah. you you are an idiot. It's just uh, I've seen that happen a couple of times too. They they think they can come in there and impress everyone with their CV and their years of experience, but they can't handle a graduate student who's got two years experience having a better idea than them. They just can't handle that fact. Yep, yep. Yeah. It's just uh, oh, there's a handful of other ideas in here. I think we're going to have to once again ask our listeners to say, hey, you know. Did this spark a thought or a comment or, or do you have an idea of how to get out of these kind of situations? Or if you've seen it, transformations in organizations, what worked and what didn't work, all those kinds of thoughts and questions there. We could go on for another like four, two, three more minutes, I think, on this one, uh, being facetious. Yeah. But if you've got a, you're listening to this and you got a question or an idea or, uh, um, you know, have seen the, a horror story, it's uh, that kind of stuff, or a success story, let us know. Head over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash SOR. And a couple of ways you can get in touch with the, us there. Chris and I and the other hosts of the show are available through LinkedIn and through our about pages. Now, I, I kind of felt like, Chris, we were just ramping up for getting into a whole nother topic. So I thought I'd better wrap up here and just let people get out of their cars and get in the office very good call We've got breakfast to eat and workplaces to go to so yeah good good call by you all right right but yeah it's an important topic and it goes to the heart of the culture of where we work and what who we work with and all those kind of things and and uh, so hopefully you have a, a, a good organization, good culture, and this is a foreign concept to you. And that would be great. If not, well, let us know. We, maybe we can help you. But anyway, yeah, yeah, that's about all we can do. A virtual <laughs> hug. Um, so anyway, Chris, virtual hug off to you and the family. Have a good weekend. Uh, we're recording this on a Friday. So enjoy. And um, we'll talk again soon. Absolutely, Fred. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show. Please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.